Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books of the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ryan Driscoll-Tate, and our guest today is Elaine Hampton. She's a retired associate professor in teacher education at the University of Texas in El Paso, and she's the author, with Cynthia Ontiveros, of Copper Stain, a book about Osarco's legacy in El Paso. It's out now through the University of Oklahoma. Elaine Hampton, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Elaine, before we begin, why don't you just take a few minutes to tell listeners a little bit about yourself and how you became an academic and an educator. Right. I, I live in Las Cruces, New Mexico. I've been here most of my life. And it's just 40 miles north of El Paso, Texas, in Ciudad Juarez in Mexico. And I was a science teacher here for quite a while. And then eventually, through different projects, I ended up being a professor at the University of Texas in El Paso. And I have um, worked there many years. I have many friends and research projects in three locations, Las Cruces, El Paso, and in a few places in Mexico. So I'm really in my happy spot. I'm a border researcher, and I um, get to examine the wonders of these border dwellers. So how did you come to write this book, Copper Stain? Yeah, when I was a professor at, uh, in the College of Education at the University of Texas, El Paso, one of my students was my co-author, Cynthia Ontiveros. She was at that time an administrator and still is an administrator in the El Paso Independent School District. We received a grant from the Environmental Protection Agency, a rather large grant, to uh, inform the public about air quality issues in the El Paso area. Um, back when we actually, the time that the book covers, the history that the book covers, El Paso was one of the worst polluted cities in the nation. It's much better now. We have pretty good air. Um, but for that project, Cynthia and I teamed together with some other researchers at UTEP and had teachers help teachers write lesson plans for their classes about air quality and the issues about air quality and what was happening. The high school teachers wanted to include stories about a sarco, this old smelter, American Smelting and Refining Company, a copper smelter that was located right basically in the heart of El Paso. And many of the El Paso district schools were actually under the influence of the emissions from that smelter. And those teachers didn't want the community to forget um, Asarco and what it had done. It was uh, in its last stages of life, about to be torn down. So we started that project and while that was going on, some of the ex-employees from ASARCO were looking around asking policymakers in El Paso, in the state, even in the nation, if they could help them. These uh, ex-employees had serious health diseases, and they attributed it to their work at ASARCO. ASARCO shut down, left them with no compensation. So uh, one of the people that they asked was uh, actually went to Beto O'Rourke's office. He was then representative, uh, U.S. representative from El Paso. His uh, environmental officer was named Liam Ha, and she 
found that she couldn't help them in, but she found out what we were doing with this air quality project. So she called us and said, if we ask if we could just meet some of the ex-employees. Uh, she said, I can't help them. We can't find any compensation. But they're fascinating men, and their story deserves to be told. So we did. So we set up a meeting with um, two of the men who are major contributors to this project, uh, Daniel Ariano and Charlie Rodriguez. We call them Danny and Charlie. They came to the meeting with their friend Arturo. Arturo said very little. He was just leaning on his cane because he had advanced stages of Parkinson's. And Danny started it out. He rolled his sleeves up and stuck his arms up in the air and said, look at all these tumors. He had like 50 marble-sized tumors on his arms. And he said, this is the disease that I have. The doctor said it was some kind, some disease related to leukemia. And he said the doctor had definitely stated that it was environmentally caused, and he was in the thick of the metal production in that Asaco plant. And Charlie um, showed us a rash that he'd had that's painful and been ongoing for years, and he'd been leading this effort, trying and trying to get compensation. He still does it today. But he said, look, Elaine and Cynthia, don't believe us, and let's look at the documents. And he said, he and Charlie, Danny had a bunch of documents, about eight inches thick, and they scooted it over to us and said, we're not lying. Just read all this, mm. and you'll find out what, what's happening and what caused all this. So that's how it all started. Um, in, that, in that list, he had a, the names of quite a few men, and we used those men as a snowball effect. We contacted them and they, their friends and their friends and ended up with 64 women and one man. I mean, 64 men and one woman. Wow. You know, this really began then as almost like a community, you know, public history project. Had you done that kind of work before? I've done more ethnographic research. Um, I worked, spent eight years with a woman in Ciudad Juarez who had come from the interior of Mexico to work in those factories there and the problems that she had. She wanted her education. So we stayed eight, to get eight years together telling her story. It's an amazing story on its own. So uh, a little more uh, ethnographic deep research, but this was fascinating too to to get the, this many stories together. Yeah, so the books out here in West Texas are Sarco is the major industry. Could you start by setting the scene for us a little bit for our listeners who might not be familiar? Right. Yeah, El Paso is that city in the far west corner of Texas, and it borders Mexico and New Mexico. And you know, the Rio Grande comes starts up in Colorado and goes splits right down the heart of New Mexico and then angles off to the east, becoming the southern border of the United States. It's about a 1,000 miles across the entire stretch of southern Texas that it is our, our border there. And um, this Asarco, since it was a huge multinational corporation, it had metal mining and metal processing industries all across the western United States. We have you know, all kinds of metal ores in our mountains and all through Mexico where they have a lot of metal ores, you know. Mining had actually been happening in the in the North America and South America since even before the Spaniards came. Um, then in the 1880s, it really was an Asarco and some metal barons who started this Asarco smelter in El Paso, about eight, late middle 1880s. Um, so they built this lead smelter at that time right on the Rio Grande River where it forms the border, uh, just yards away from Mexico, yards away from what was eventually University of Texas at El Paso, 
I could see it out of my window when I was teaching there. And less than two miles from downtown El Paso, two miles from downtown Ciudad Juarez, those downtowns are close together, and right near the spot where Juan de Oñote crossed the river and said, I claim this land for Spain. Um, now the community, well, then the community was much smaller in the 1880s, but now it's about two million people. And Asarco actually closed down in 1999, but it didn't close. It just closed for care and maintenance. So there was 12 men left there, and that way they avoided doing any environmental cleanup, and they never paid for environmental cleanup. Right now it's in the final stages of remediation. The smokestacks have blown down, and it's pretty much just barren land. So tell us a little bit about the workers. You've mentioned Danny and Charlie already. Um, who were the typical employees at the plant? Um, you interviewed a lot of them. Yeah, so uh, the list that Charlie and Danny gave us, we started there. We called all these others, so we got these 64 men and one woman that were actually ex-employees. We had quite a few of their wives. The wives would stay in the interviews quite often and any other people that we could find that had relevant information. Um, so I just asked them an open-ended question. You know, What can you tell us about your work at the Asarco plant? A few men were not physically able to give us much of a story, but most of them uh, went into quite a bit of detail. And we took all of the information and sorted it into themes. And um, the major themes that came out were, oddly, horrible accidents. Almost every man had the story of a horrible accident, some happening to them or some that they had witnessed. And they wanted to tell me about what they did at the plant, what their role was at the smoking plant. Um, most of them had worked there. Their parents and grandparents or fathers and grandfathers had worked there. Um, and they were, uh, they've been there for many, many years themselves. And they wanted to talk about their friendships, the community that formed there. They played sports together and went fishing together and played golf together. But they also told, most of them told, 55 in fact, of the 65, told about their health problems, pretty severe health problems, and they all attributed those to working at the plant. Um, I can let George tell you a little bit of the story, because George um, Escalante was, was pretty fun. <laughs> and I'm going to read just a little bit about what he said. Um, yeah, he said that when they were, uh, he said that they were covered from head to toe in their safety gear, but they could still tell which man they were working alongside. For example, he says, the shape of their back, the way they stand, you get to know them. It was so noisy that we used hand signals. We could cuss with our hands. He demonstrated a few. And your wife, and he drew these rounded breasts, is on the phone. He put his thumb and little finger up to his ear. And then George kind of grinned shyly. And uh, he told us about one thing that complicated our research but was interesting was that they called each other by nicknames. They didn't use uh, use their formal names. So they would say something like, well, yeah, the buffalo did this, and this is what happened. I said, well, who was the buffalo? I don't know. We just always called him the buffalo. <laughs> they had the buffalo and the nun and lizard and blonde goat and blackie and sweet potato. And, of course, these were all in Spanish. Uh, step for two, there was Popeye, the guy who always smoked a pipe, and a great big white guy who was an electrician, and they called him Winnie Bago. 
So they, they, they had fun also while they worked there and made it an enjoyable experience. Yeah, that's such a vivid interview. And you described the labor process in the smelters. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the workplace conditions inside? Health and safety is obviously a massive concern, both short and long term. And you say at one point that they worked in a, quote, concentrated toxic and caustic soup, unquote. And one plant doctor remarked, quote, if they're not sick now, it just hasn't caught up to them. Right. Um, number one, they never complained much about the heat. But as they described it, I don't see how anyone could have lived 30 seconds. Some of the men were uh, brick, brick masons. So these huge furnaces that did the, uh, did the smelting process, melting, making the copper series of them, were mostly made out of brick. And it gets so hot in there, the brick would just melt. So they were continually having the masons make new bricks and repairing them. They would go into, they'd shut the down the furnace, cool it off for a little bit, but it was still you know, 200 degrees. And so these men would cover up and go in and work like five minutes and come out and cool off and go back for five minutes. And then many of the men, so there was the, the production line. So when you were actually making the smelter, those jobs were the ones where they were exactly exposed to all of the toxins. There were men that worked all around the plant, the maintenance, electricians, um, the, and the brick masons. Um, so the, uh, mostly what happened was this, the rock would come in on rail cars, and it takes 350 tons of rock to make one ton of copper. So they'd load all that rock onto these big conveyor belts. And the conveyor belts will send it up to the, the production process. And you mentioned safety. And safety varied from time to time. Before the unions, there was very little concern for safety. And then the unions and some of our new regulations from EPA and from OSHA modified so that there had to be more safety regulations. But sometimes these men were kind of out there on their own. But toward the end, there was a little bit safer of an environment. So on, on that production line, they would... Follow that the product would go up on the conveyor belt. They mixed it with some other materials. The men knew what these were to get it ready for those furnaces. Then there would be men who did the loading and dumping processes. There'd be men up in cranes above, flying, floating right above all that huge smoke and gases and bubbling lava that was going on inside of the furnaces. Monitoring that, they could tell exactly what the temperature, what the color would be, if there was any kind of wrong product in there. And then down at the bottom of the furnaces, you had these men right on top of the product. They had an opening from the furnace, bottom of the furnace, where the copper would come out. And it came out in big troughs. And the men would have to watch the flow of that standing on top of copper lava, actually. Monitoring that, putting it in that, getting it to the next furnace for the next set of processes. And then also out of another opening would come the slag or the waste product. And it was, again, another form of lava. And they would put that in big vats. They put that slag in trucks, haul it outside to a big cliff, and dump that lava up over the side of the cliff. That's where many horrible accidents happened. But in nighttime, the community would see the lava flowing down that cliff. And it was quite an event to see see this glowing lava flowing in the night. But uh, those were the basic processes. I never was inside to see what happened, but I could just go by what the men described to me. They're pretty proud of their work. Of course, yeah. You know, there's a particular event that you describe in the book in the 1990s when Osarco was illegally burning toxic waste in El Paso. 
Um, what was happening and, and how did this all come to light? Yeah, Charlie and Danny told us to focus on that. Um, they had a document in their, uh, in their stack of papers that showed a court order that was indicting ASARCO for sham recycling during the years 1992 to 1997. And several of the men told us that in the 1990s, they noticed something different. Instead of being copper or ore, you know, just a lot of um, uh, metal uh, rocks, or sometimes metal to be recycled, it was something completely different. It was more like a dust, a slurry, you know. I think Charlie said it looked like cow patties. One man said he saw green globs dripping out the side of a train car. And then they would try to put that on a conveyor belt. And the conveyor belt wasn't built for that. Um, the material wouldn't stay on it. Um, it slithered and slimed down, and it would get on the metal chutes and the stainless steel wheels. And the men said that those metals were corroded within a week. They had to replace them every week. And one of the men said, imagine what it was doing to us. So um, we finally got those documents from Charlie, and they had shipped these tons and tons of illegal waste to the El Paso smelter and also to another smelter in Montana. And where it all came from was, you know, in the 1970s, our country before that, we were ignorant, I don't know, complacent, or had our head in the sand about what was going on with the environment and just let industry have free reign to do whatever they want, wanted. And so all of these toxic wastes were building a uh, building up at industrial facilities. So in 1976, the um, Resource and Conservation Recovery Act became our national law and had all kinds of regulations for the proper disposal of these toxins. Um, and so ASARCO, the, the big uh, international corporation of ASARCO, thought, well, now we can take advantage of, of Disposing of all of these wastes will start a waste treatment facility. I don't know how many they started, but the one in our story was a waste treatment facility in Corpus Christi, Texas, called InCycle. And uh, it was owned again by this big cycle corporation. And their job was to take incoming streams of waste from industry, uh, process it, separate out the recyclable metals and other materials, and send those off to be recycled and then process the remaining materials and uh, dispose of them and process them according to what regulations said in that Resource Conservation Recovery Act. And apparently they did do a little of that. However, in the documents, Charlie and Danny showed us, printed out from the Internet, a, a document, a letter written by a whistleblower named John Cahill, who worked at that plant in Corpus Christi during its first couple of years. And... He recorded that there would be train loads of material coming in. All of these industries were dying to get rid of their waste. Um, so these train loads would come in, and instead of being processed, they were overwhelming the system, of course, they would just be stored in out on the lot or in the warehouses, or one was even out on the, the bay near the uh, near Corpus Christi Bay. and um, so what the whistleblower saw was that they would just take this raw product just as it came in from the waste um, from the waste stream, put it on train cars, and send it to El Paso and that other plant in Montana, I think to a few other plants also. 
So then it comes to El Paso to the smelter there. There was no documentation, no processing, no moving manifests, no labels, none of this. And from when it started, it was hidden from the community for 15 years. Um, now, there was a science teacher named Heather McMurray, and she came across an EPA document related to that and started asking questions and wrote to EPA for backup and found out that EPA had actually documented this sham recycling and documented all the regulations that they had broken. Um, we never could get exact information about what was being shipped, but we know that they were shipping material eagerly, illegally, processing it, illegally labeling it, illegally transporting it, um, and that had gone on for six years to the uh, El Paso smelter. And um, so in 2006, Heather found that information, and she sent it to the El Paso Times, and it, it became very uh, uh, public after that. Man, yeah. Is there any way to know what toxins they were sending out into the environment or, or what the potential health impacts of that are? I mean, I know, obviously, if it's being kept, if there's no official ledgers, it's become secret that we can't really say for sure. But um, is there anything that you observed, at least? Yeah, it's not. this isn't an epidemiological study. You know, there's no way you can tell one person or a few cases we could. If someone has mesothelioma, you can see the asbestos fibers in their lungs, so you know that the asbestos, asbestos called that, caused that lung cancer. But most time, you, you can't directly determine the cause. We documented as much as we could find of what was shipped. So, well, actually not even what was shipped. We knew a few places that, the, that in Corpus Christi recycling plant, a few of their waste streams where they came from. And so we knew a few things that were produced at those places. So we can assume that some kind of toxins related to that were sent to the El Paso smelter. Um, and, of course, the smelter, when it was functioning, uh, even as it was continued, processing metals had to report to EPA the amount of certain toxins that were being released into the air. And so we know that they had measured their arsenic, the king of all poisons, <laughs> cadmium, lead. We know that caused blood poisoning, brain damage, hyperactivity, and that sulfur dioxide, that's that yellowy acid smell. Um, people who drove by or the UTEP students walking around could just smell that like an acid that would get into your lungs and in your, uh, into your throat, your nose. And we know that there was an illegal dumping of PCB oils, which is that really nasty oil that's been banned today and it never breaks down. And one of the, most of the things coming that probably came from the industry were petrochemical products, um, we know one place was making uh, agriculture products, so it's agriculture, uh, I'm not agriculture, not agriculture products, but um, um, fertilizers. So it was the, whatever was left over from fertilizer production. And also, one of the places was actually making sarin gas, and there's quite a bit of evidence of that. Those off, uh, waste products from that were actually coming to El Paso. So we are left with many unknowns. Uh, about what was coming in, but according to what the men said, it was very different at that time. A few men, though, said no, they noticed no difference at all, but they may not have been on the production line. Yeah, and you walk a good line in the book about what you can and cannot know, and in fact, you have a whole appendix about all the interviewees uh, and their current health conditions, and for those who are deceased, uh, what they died from, 
Um, and so it enables readers, I think, in some ways to look at the data for themselves and, and even make even some of their own conclusions uh, or some of their own analysis. So what was the worker and community response uh, once all this begins to come to light? Yeah, you know, it was, like I say, hit until 2006. The plant had been shut down for, uh, for quite, quite a while at that time, almost eight, eight years or something like that, almost a decade. And um, what happened, I, this is the weirdest part, ASARCO decided to reopen. They applied to the state for permission to start a smelting process again and release all those toxins. This is, the plant's been shut down. It's mothballed. It's rusted. <laughs> But for some reason, they decided to try that. And by this time, though, the information about the illegal waste was public, although it wasn't really widespread. Charlie and Danny did a lot to spread that and share it with their ex-employees, their, their friends and colleagues. And Danny Aviano, with his wife Margaret's help, um, were quite uh, important leaders in getting the community together to fight against a circle reopening. So, Leaders, organizations in Ciudad Juarez, in New Mexico, Sierra Club, Akron, um, all kinds of students at UTEP, many, many people band together and did everything they could to do to fight Asarcos getting the permit from the state to reopen. Actually, the state granted the permit to, re- to Asarco anyway, but I think because of many things, the cop- price of copper went down, no one knows exactly why. But Asarco decided not to reopen. Um, the all of the men that I interviewed and and uh, the nurse that the one woman Irene said that they appreciated their work at Asarco. They were paid very well. Um, and they were proud of that. The men were proud that they sacrificed such hard work, doing two shifts quite often. The shifts were not uh, consistent, so they were able to sleep one night and not the next night. Um, when they came home, they wouldn't. Sometimes they'd say they wouldn't let their children, or their wives, touch them until they showered and cleaned out, uh, cleaned off very well. Some of the women said that the men, when they slept, the next morning their pillows would be green. The sweat came out green. So they suffered a lot, but they wore it with pride because they had money to send their kids to school and to make their families comfortable. And sure enough, many of the many of the men told me about what their children were doing. There's uh, a long list of very successful professionals in the El Paso area and across the nation because of the men working in Sarco. We were all proud of it in our community. Um, they raised the smokestack in 1967. Uh, so the reason they raised the smokestack so that was that so that most of the smoke would catch the the wind waves and sink, go into Ciudad Juarez and less into the El Paso community. We didn't know that, but we were proud because we had one of the small tallest smokestacks in the nation. Um, but many of the men really feel betrayed now, especially as their health has gotten so bad and they realize what was really going on. You mentioned the environmental organizations like Sierra Club and also community groups like ACORN and their involvement during this. Uh, was there any union involvement also? What is the labor history at this point in time? I couldn't go into much detail on that. I just couldn't find too much information. Um, I, I knew a little bit and interviewed a couple couple of men who were union leaders and they were and I know that the union was important in ensuring some of the safety uh, some of the men said that just because EPA said it the corporation or circle would not institute the safety measures but when the union came in they did for some of those safety measures 
And the men also said that the unions, you know, even though they were, they helped the men in the, and, and it was, there were quite a few united uh, uh, strikes, uh, but it wasn't just for one place in particular, it would be a, a national strike quite often. I just couldn't find much detail on that. Um, but the thing is that the men said the unions um, would advocate for their higher salaries. And sometimes those higher salaries with the cost of insurance and retirement so that their benefits were reduced. So it was, yeah, that's all I could find out about the unions. Okay. You know, I wanted to go back to the framing of the book. There's two terms that you use uh, throughout. One is obligated exposure and the other is symbolic violence. Can you tell us what you mean by those? Yeah, Cynthia Monteveros was the the leader in this part of the research. She had been doing other research on uh, environmental racism. And um, she's, she's got quite a few nice things documented in the book about what happens in our nation. And then, you know, we know it's much worse in developing nations. But that industry is most often located in low-income communities, multiple reasons why. But the low-income folks in these communities, and I think in most cases they're people of color, end up working in these dangerous jobs. And, and they live there where the land is so cheap. And they, they feel this obligation that, that workers are obliged, I don't know if they feel it, but they are obliged to live there and work there. They have no other economic resources to change their situation. Um, uh, there are quite a few folks that talked about uh, his, the, some of the environmental injustices that happened in Houston, in uh, Tar Creek, Oklahoma. One of the 10 worst environmental disasters in the nation was on Indian lands where Asarco was dumping, was doing an awful lead mine and just dumped all kinds of toxins and has left that that place. It's still under a super fund being cleaned up, but it's not cleaned up yet. So there's quite a bit. There's another one existing Asarco plant. I think there's two existing in the U.S. And one is in Hayden, Arizona, and it still is poisoning the people. It's almost as bad as what we recorded here in El Paso's Asarco. Um, those obligations actually can become a symbolic violence. We call it a slow and slippery violence because it's imposed on these folks just because of their economic conditions. Um, they, they're abusing the land, abusing the air, abusing the water, and the folks that are there are left with nothing else to deal with it if it's on, their double burden is on them if they try to prove that any problems that they have are caused by this exposure because they automatically the weight is on their shoulders to prove any problems. You know, one of the things that's really great about this book and that comes out in the interview too is just how collaborative, what a collaborative effort this was. And that's oftentimes easier said than done because it can be tough to balance priorities and inputs of different um, partners. Can you talk about your experience doing this as a collaborative project, both with the community and with Cynthia? Well, um, I think the Asarco is just, it was, it was a, a huge historical marker for the El Paso community. And there's still communities of ex-Asarco ex employees who meet together for dinner and share stories. And some are uh, continually proud of and would say nothing against Asarco uh, just because it was, it was such a big part of their lives. Um, and there's, there's a was a little 
tiny community when the Mexicans first started coming crossing the river, just walking across the river to work at the Asarco plant, they built little houses and the pollution got so bad that they had to tear that city down. But that community called Smeltertown still has reunions and there's tremendous pride in that. Um, it's It was just such a huge part of our community uh, and who we are. And anytime I ask uh, anyone for an interview, I was never turned down except uh, one of the women was, um, she was just too brokenhearted about some things that had happened. And and she cried continually and she said, I just can't do the interview. And then Arturo, the man with Parkinson's disease, said he couldn't do the interview either. But um, even our, our museum at the at University of Texas, El Paso, the Centennial Museum, is doing a whole uh, series coming up right away on the Asarco Smelter and that little town of Smeltertown, the little community of Smeltertown, which, on a side note, uh, I interviewed one of the uh, a couple who had lived in Smeltertown, uh, Mary, Mary Ontiveros, who told me she just, Mary sat down at her table and drew a map in her mind on the tablecloth and kept pointing about people that she knew in her neighborhood who had died of cancer. And she didn't stop until she had 30 friends and neighbors from Smeltertown who had died of cancer. So it's a mixed story, but it is a deep story in the heart of El Paso. You know, the stories about El Paso, it's about a community, but there's so much more at stake sometimes, I feel like, in terms of its global implications, its global scale. Could you talk a little bit about how you see that? Absolutely. You know, it's it's about the whole thing dangles on this. The Mexicans call it a Quinti Hamaca, which is a ham- hammock bridge. <laughs> it's like dangling little elastic cords over a big canyon and trying to walk on it. And that's where, where environmental regulations fit right now. You can see how vital the environmental regulations were <clears throat> to the survival of the planet, to the survival of the men and the community and the water, and yet how those those environmental regulations were just swept away in the wind so easily. And so it is a it is a story that's a cautionary tale about what's happening in our nation today as environmental regulations are being undone right and left. Of course, we can go overboard in regulations, and no law is perfect, but we can see what happens. Uh, the early years before there was any environmental regulation, those men were working in smelter with all those gases, with nothing but a wet handkerchief around it, their faces. So, yeah, we need to examine the, the role of environmental regulations versus the, role of it, versus the role of industry and see if we can come up with better compromises. Yeah, that's so important. And I wanted to know, too, if there's anything that completely surprised you when you're working on a project. I feel like, especially when you're doing these kind of community-based studies, that sometimes you can just get blown away by by the people or the stories that you uncover. Um, everything, probably. <clears throat> this was a, you know, it, it was an eye-opening. It was to see, to see the dynamic, to see the energy, to see the, the love, to see the compassion. Um, I think the power of going into a person's home, having the family, the children sometimes sit down at the table and listen to dad's story about what happened and um, show, they would show me their masks that they wore and the the boots that they wore and the little awards that they got for, for having no safety violations, which they did have safety violations, but they hid them so they could get the awards. (laughs) But uh, just the, 
the respect that the people had for this and the desire to get that story out there. Right, right. You know, Elaine, we've taken up a lot of your time today. I'm interested to know what you're working on next. I'm assuming you're going to be promoting the book, but do you have any other projects in, in the works? Well, Cynthia and I have invited, been invited to the Texas Festival, Festival of Books, so we'll be sharing, that, sharing the book there in October. And I do have ongoing research in the little Mexican community just over the, the river from where the Asmarco, Asarco smelter was functioning. Um, there's a group of women who have formed cooperatives to help each other as they're struggling with children with disabilities. And a lot of poisons in that area. Again, we know Asako contributed to it, but there are a lot of other sources of the poisons. But how these women formed together and have created a very successful community in spite of having children with severe disabilities. That's a, that's a new interesting study I'm looking at. Yeah, that's a really fascinating project. Uh, Elaine, thank you so much for joining us. Elaine Hampton and Cynthia Antaveros' new book, Copper Stain, Osarco's Legacy in El Paso, is out now at the University of Oklahoma. Elaine, thank you for joining us. We hope to have you back again soon. Ryan, thank you very much. I appreciate you having this podcast and keeping these good Western stories going. Of course. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.